This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. Check out Renthal.com for the Fit My Bike option to see all the Renthal parts that you can add to your motorcycle. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, it's a scaled down crew. It's only myself, Steve English and Neil Morrison on the pod. For some reason, we've got people in, in, in transit. David's on his way out to Malaysia. Adam's coming back from Supercross in Houston. But uh, Neil, thankfully, we got you on the call. Yes, exactly, Steve. And uh, as the rain hammers against the window just outside my living room, uh, I have to say I'm slightly envious of Mr. Emmett, who's uh, jetting off for the tropics at uh, this early time of the year. Obviously enough, Neil, you're not going to be in Malaysia for the test, but as usual, you're going to be down in Dornas HQ doing the After the Flag shows. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we'll have coverage from uh, all three days of testing, which kicks off on Friday this week. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we'll have three one and a half hour shows uh, daily, just around uh, noon uh, CET. So uh, yeah, everyone that has a uh, video pass um, that is signed up on the, the MotoGP.com website should have access to that. And um, I think Simon Crafar is out in uh, Sepang and he'll obviously be live on the ground giving us some updates and uh, yeah we'll be seeing some images here and some interviews of uh, all the all the characters I guess there's plenty to, to pick through well there's a lot to pick through and we're actually going to be quite a short show today because even though David's off to Malaysia we still made sure we put him to work for this show so he's been chatting to Peter Baum so we've got 15 minutes of Peter Baum a world championship winning crew chief and obviously over the last few years, Peter's been working as a broadcaster as well and commentator. So Peter's got a lot of good insight. It's going to be well worth listening to the 15 minutes at the end of this show with him. But we're going to try and keep it pretty short, Neil, because we've got a lot of content coming all the way through this week. Sepang is always one of the busiest tests, one of the busiest weeks of the year for the podcast, just because it's the start of it all again. And this is where we start to see some answers. But what's the one thing that you're really looking forward to from the Sepang test? Like, what's the one storyline you're going to be following most intently? Oh, well, to pick out just one, I think, is uh, is quite difficult, Steve. We had the, the test at Valencia. Well, I'll I tell you what, I'll tell you what. Just because David and Adam aren't on the pod, pick two. <laughs> well, I think we looked at uh, what we saw in Valencia at the end of last year. And, I mean, the, the five fastest guys, or in fact, the six fastest guys in testing at Valencia were Marini, Vinales, Bezecchi, Oliveira, Alessio Spargaro and Fabio De Gian Antonio. I mean, there was an element of randomness to uh, that final order there. And I'm curious to see whether any of those guys who, you know, looked decent last year, um, obviously Espargaro had a standout season, but the likes of Marini, Bezecchi, even De Gian Antonio, whether um, starting their third or second years in the class, whether they can kick on and maybe start to show some form which suggests they might be contenders at the front of the uh, at the front of the, the series. But I guess the big thing I'm looking forward to is just to see whether Yamaha has um, basically righted the kind of ills of that Valencia test when its 2023 engine um, didn't quite show the top speed that it had done in previous tests. Um, and certainly indications from the shakedown test, the three days of, of testing for the factory's test riders and, of course, for the, the sole rookie in the class, which is Augusto Fernandez. Um, indications from that test suggest that Yamaha have understood the issue and have rectified it. Um, certainly Kyle Crutchlow um, in some 
kind of off-the-record comments was uh, indicating that he's pretty happy with Hidja's performance with Yamaha across uh, the three days at Sepang that they've just had there. So, um, yeah, I think um, seeing that, I think that's obviously going to be pretty pivotal um, in in Fabio Quartararo's ability to maybe step up and, and fight for the championship this year. Um, so, yeah, I think that is, is probably the number one story that I'm looking forward to, Steve. Yeah, and that actually ties in nicely with a question that uh, Tristan Falconer had asked us as to whether Yamaha have given Fabio enough to be a competitive bike this year. Do they need more horsepower? Can they beat Ducati? And like you said, Neil, this is where we get the first real chance to see if the Valencia test was just a blip and some sort of catastrophic issue that they that they had befalled them there because it was such a shock when the engine was such a big issue for them at the Valencia test. Now we go to Sepang, a real horsepower test. This is where we get the real chance to see what sort of progress they have made. So yeah, what we saw at the, at the shakedown, Steve, was the top speeds recorded through the speed traps did look promising um, for uh, for Yamaha and the 2023 M1. Um, I think we saw a top speed of 335 from one of Cal Crutzlow's machines, which was around four kilometers per hour quicker than um, what Quattararo managed at last year's um, Grand Prix. Um, Crutchlow was at pains to point out that the, the speed trap, I think, falls just at the start of the braking area for turn one at Sepang. So it's not always a, a, a trustworthy indication of, uh, of what the actual top speed is because riders are already hitting the brakes for that. But he did insist to our colleague Pete McLaren, who works for, of course, for Crash.net, who's out there at the, at the shakedown at the moment. He did indicate that the engine is good. It's, the engine is fast, he said. So, um, yeah, that would suggest that, um, you know, the the tests that they had done in Barcelona and Misano prior to Valencia where they had the issues, which were promising, it, it does seem that um, that engine is, is back. So, um, yeah, let's, I'm sure, Quattararo, Morbidelli, they'll be they'll be pinning their hopes on that um, being as strong in the, the three upcoming days. Yeah, and obviously enough, the uh, an imperfect speed trap as long as it's consistent it's consistently imperfect so at least if there is still that increase it bodes well for yamaha so we'll wait and see what happens over the course of the full three days of testing but we've got another question as well from katie kent which i thought was quite interesting neil just for leading us into some of the rest of the discussion in the build-up to this pang test is who do you think will make the most progress this year as opposed to last year because we've already seen an awful lot of new arrows come out from the Sepang test, KTM have a, a very different side profile to the bike on the side of the fairing. We've seen Aprilia with their S-Ducks in the front fairing. And uh, we're going to see a host of upgrades to... Ducati's made some small upgrades already, but you're expecting to see some some bigger ones over the course of the rest of the, the winter testing schedule. And it is a case now that this is where the war is. And certainly... If you manage to dial in the arrow, you can find big gains. Yep, absolutely. Um, and just to answer that question that was sent in there, I do think KTM are probably the ones that that you're looking at this year as, as potentially the factory, uh, the bike um, that can make a, a big jump forward. Um, you know, looking at their numbers last year, they weren't actually that far away. Um, I think their average um, finish in the second half of the season was around seven seconds uh, off the victor. And when you consider that Brad Binder's average grid position was, I think, either 12th or 13th, um, you know, if they could sort their qualifying out, um, you know, that would be even closer still. So um, I think everyone at KTM knows that, um, you know, the qualifying has been such an issue for the, their bikes over the last uh, two years. Um, if they can sort that out, 
They've got two riders in Paul Spargo and Jack Miller now who are very fast qualifying riders and have decent qualifying records through their history in the MotoGP class. Um, you know, then they, they, they could be poised to, to make that step up. And during their team launch uh, a week ago, it was interesting to hear both Pitt Barrer, their motorsport director, and Brad Binder saying that their expectation and desire for this year is to step up from being guys that are fighting in the top six every weekend and top six in the championship to be fighting for the podium every weekend. Pitt said he wants at least one KTM in the podium fight pretty much every weekend to deem this season ahead of success. And from what we hear, there is going to be a pretty radical um, new aero package, or maybe two new aero packages that they roll out at some time at Sepang because obviously they've got a new agreement with Red Bull Advanced Technologies, which is um, basically a, a group of um, aerodynamicists that have previous experience in F1 and the, the Red Bull F1 project. Um, they've been down at um, the wind tunnel um, uh, several times, well, many times over the winter. Um, so you do think that uh, KTM now pretty much have the expertise, the experience at their disposal to make that big jump. Yeah, and I think that um, obviously for the Sepang shakedown test, we did see three days where Augusto Fernandez, the only rookie in the field, was able to get out on track. Paul's coming across from Honda back to the KTM stable on the gas gas bike. It's going to be interesting to see how he readapts to a team and an environment that he always felt at home with. Obviously, he came into MotoGP at the Tech 12 squad. And then with KTM, he had a lot of success with driving that project forward. So that's going to be really key to make sure that for KTM as a whole, that they've got, you know, three riders with a lot of MotoGP experience. Fernandez coming up after winning the Moto2 World Championship. Obviously, it didn't work out too well for Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez last year, but at least you got three riders that are known commodities as MotoGP stars. And uh, it's going to be key for them to be able to bring that project on. And I think that's kind of similar to Aprilia as well, because obviously Aprilia now with satellite team for the first time and uh, the ORNF squad, they're going to get their first uh, first run with the new bike over the course of the next couple of days. And that's going to be really interesting to see the changes from the end of last year and what Miguel Oliveira is able to do on that bike is going to be key. And then obviously whether or not Aleish can retain the role of being the team leader because it's all changed now. Vinales is a year under the belt, 18 months under his, under his belt with that bike. And he'll expect to be the team leader. Oliveira has always thought of himself as being that guy as well. So suddenly it's a lot more competitive within the Aprilia camp as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, new ground for Aprilia, obviously the first time in their history that they've had a satellite team in MotoGP. If I'm not mistaken, I think the RNF boys will be on last year's bikes, the bikes that ended 2022. Um, so I think the, the new stuff we'll have to keep an eye on, you know, Espargaro, Vinales, and then Salvatore, the test rider there. But it was interesting at the Ducati launch a few weeks ago, I think both Bastianini and Bagnaia were listing several names that could fight for the championship this year. And Oliveira was the, the one guy from all, uh, Aprilia that uh, that came up. Um, so, yeah, you do think that he's he's poised to have a good season. Um, he's obviously got plenty to prove after losing his seat in the factory KTM squad. And um, his first impressions of the bike were, were very positive indeed. I mean, I kind of mentioned earlier, um, he was fourth at the test at Valencia um, after just uh, one day, essentially, on the, uh, the RSGP. So that certainly bodes well. Um, you know, Aprilia made such a massive step forward last year. Um, I don't know. It's 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 difficult to see them. 
well, I guess they, they just have to keep pace now. They don't have to make massive gains anymore because they already were more or less at the uh, at the front of, of the MotoGP pack. But um, I think they have a big job to, to kind of, you know, keep moving in the right direction. But the fact that they have three very good riders, three riders capable of winning MotoGP races now in their in their stable, that is definitely a, that is definitely a help because in so many years it was just a Spargo that was getting results for them. Yeah, and I think it is one of those situations where last year, obviously, the Aprilia was arguably the second best bike on the grid. So now whenever you put three known MotoGP race winners and Raul Fernandez, don't forget that he was the hot property 18 months ago or a year ago coming into MotoGP. Everyone wants to have Raul on the bike. And now he's going to have that opportunity with the Aprilia. It's going to be a much more sorted package. And he's got a year of MotoGP experience, and so that's up to him to step up. And I think that's one of the big things that over the course of the last few years, we have seen a lot of riders in that second season make a step forward. Bastianini for one, and uh, and, and a, a few other riders. And this could be the year where Raul, with the right team environment around him, with the right mindset for him as well, because he wasn't faultless last year. Let's Let's be honest about that. But it's up to him to make that step now and... This is the put-up-or-shut-up time, really, for a lot of those riders. And for someone like Raul, the next year is critical for where his career is going to go. Exactly, yeah. And signs of Valencia weren't entirely positive. I mean, he was uh, 1.3 seconds off the quickest time, um, 21st overall. But um, he did uh, he did mention, I think it was in an inter- interview with uh, our Spanish colleague, Manuel Pacino, that um, by the end of last year, he just felt destroyed physically um you know he hadn't really uh experienced the kind of calendar obviously in 20 races uh, lots of injuries along the way um and obviously stepping up to ride a MotoGP bike so um he's now had a, a full winter to prepare and um yeah i absolutely agree with you steve it's time to, to put up or shut up for Al because what we saw last year just was nowhere near good enough both in terms of riding and application it was interesting that at the Hareth test, whenever I sat down with Remy Gardner just to get a quick update for the podcast, Remy said that he got so many bad habits last year on the KTM. He was just riding like an animal in the braking zone and he's had to try and just take that step back now that he's jumped onto a superbike. It's going to be interesting to see if Raul says something similar as well. Now that he's now that he's got that Valencia test under his belt, now you go to the Sepang tests to see how his riding style is evolving on that MotoGP bike as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, because, you know, by all accounts, the KTM wasn't an easy bike to get on with last year. Um, it took, you know, Brad Binder, Miguel Oliveira, two riders with a decent amount of experience in MotoGP and absolutely unquestionable uh, talent um, to, to really get the best out of it. But by no, uh, you know, we weren't left in any doubt as to whether that was an easy bike to ride. It was clear that, you know, KTM was, was difficult to get on with. Obviously, when we talk about bikes that are difficult to get along with, that immediately takes us to Honda. And it has been a difficult bike for everyone to get on with, even Mark Marquez. And last year, we did hear Mark say an awful lot about the fact that as a rider, he can't make up the difference like he could in the past. And a lot of that comes down to the aero rules that we have now. A lot of it comes down to just the evolution of MotoGP bikes. But this test is huge for Mark and for Honda because we know Mark's going to win some races because he's still Mark Marquez. But we also know that he's got a real task in his hands to be able to try and win the championship. And we saw last year in the winter tests that especially for Paul, he was really positive going into the opening couple of rounds. And then that positivity disappeared very quickly when we got into the races. Qatar went well for him and then he fell off a cliff. This is the big thing for Honda is will Sepang actually show them what they need to know. 
Exactly. Yeah. And um, we obviously have a, an interview with uh, with Peter Baum that David did uh, coming up in this show. And I think they talk about some of the peculiarities of Sepang and the conditions that you can find there and how it can sometimes complicate preseason preparation because you don't always get a, a clear indication of how the engine behaves, for example, because of the humidity, because of the heat, the temperature. Um, and you're absolutely right, Steve. I mean, Paul was pretty much the champion of, of preseason last year with Honda. We thought that Honda had built a, a brilliant new bike and it turned out to be quite the contrary. Um, and yeah, this is absolutely massive. I mean, I think behind Yamaha, just seeing how Honda are poised and, and what they have done over the winter months um, is is probably the next biggest storyline, if not the biggest one, because um, I think it's the first preseason since the end of 17, start of 18, that uh, Mark Marquez hasn't been recovering from a very, very, very serious injury, an injury that has required serious surgery, serious intervention, and quite a considerable uh, layoff. Um, I was watching one of, uh, one of he's, he's obviously got new management, um, and um, I think we can see that in the kind of the output, the number of videos that uh, are appearing on the internet where Mark is kind of taking you behind the scenes and showing you how things are done. And he did one recently where he went to, uh, is it Hangar 7, the Red Bull training studio, where they were checking his physical condition. They were checking the strength of his, uh, his right arm that he obviously broke last, sorry, in 2020. Um, and I mean, the guy does look in, in pretty phenomenal shape. He does look as though he has been training with all the vigor and energy that, um, you know, would suggest that he is mentally in a place that he thinks he can be the, the number one again this year. It's, it's all down to what Honda can do though. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing. And that's also Neil, where it's going to be interesting to see the new Honda riders coming in because Rins and Mir coming from the Suzuki to the Honda obviously they've had the Valencia test but now they've had a couple of months to try and put their stamp on things before we get into the start of the season and then you also have Alex Marquez leaving Honda to go to Ducati with the Grassini team so there are actually three riders that I think are going to be really interesting to keep an eye on will Alex make a step forward will the ex-Suzuki riders make a step back and that'll give us a real indication of where the Honda is. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, and I think uh, Alex Rins might find himself in a, in a difficult place because it's clear that Mark and, and Joanne Mayer, they're, pro- they're going to be the you know the first ones probably, as well as Takanakagami to, to try the, the very new stuff. Um, but yes, uh, you're, you're, you're right there, Steve. I think Alex Marquez is many people's tip for being a bit of a dark horse this year. He's obviously stepping into the... The seat vacated by Ine Bastianini, who won four races in the Grassini squad last year, riding the, a year-old bike. Um, so I think Marquez is poised to do well. Rins and Mir had a really tough Valencia test. Like, there's just no getting away from that. I think uh, Mir was 18th, Rins was 20th. Uh, I think both of them were complaining of just a, a chronic lack of uh, of mechanical grip. Um, they found it just very difficult to keep the thing sort of planted on the track. And... Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge test for them, um, as well as uh, as well as Mark. But um, you know, Sepang I think is probably of all the tracks in the calendar, it's, it's probably Honda's most difficult one. It's probably Mark's most difficult one as well. Although he's had some success there, you look at the race last year. It was the week after Phillip Island where he came within a tenth of winning the race, and he was uh, I think seventh, something like eleven seconds off the the victory. Um, so Sepang definitely showed last year just where Honda were at one of the more difficult tracks and yeah um, you have to imagine there's going to be three bikes in in Mark's garage Mark's side of the garage um, all test long as he kind of um, picks a direction Um, he he pretty much made it clear to Honda that he had done everything he could to return from his injury as quickly as possible um, at the Valencia test and what they brought there wasn't acceptable 
So I think, yeah, it's, it's put up or shut up time for, for Honda. They really need to make it work and it needs to be pretty much ready for this test. Yeah, and uh, obviously it's going to be a busy week for Honda and for all the manufacturers. It's going to be a busy week for us as well, though, because each night of the Spang test, we're going to be doing our Paddock Notes show. And as usual, during the Grand Prix weekend, for uh, all of our Patreon supporters, you can jump to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast and get the latest news from Boots on the Ground with David Emmett. And uh, that's going to be really key to be able to to give us an understanding of what we're seeing as well and what we're what giving a bit of context as well to what we see on the after the flag with you as well, Neil, because David's going to be able to get the nitty gritty from 12 hours a day at the track. And uh, that's where I think it's fair to say that's where David comes into his own. He loves a test and it's a chance to be able to to get his uh, fingernails into a bit of everything. So that's going to be really key for us and for our listeners as well. So check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. We're going to take a quick break on the show. And when we come back afterwards, David and Peter Baum are going to have their chat about their Sepang preview. And then next week, we'll be back to review the all the action from the Sepang test. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. I am here once again with uh, Peter Bomb. Um, we are going to take a quick look ahead to the Sepang test. Um, first of all, I mean, it's the first big test of the year. Uh, everyone is bringing all of their new stuff. Um, that means a lot of work. Obviously, there's the the uh, setup test there where the test riders will sort of make sure everything works and it doesn't blow up. Um, but Peter, explain to us what you can learn at a Sepang test and what you can't learn at a Sepang test. As a track, you can learn everything there because it's got everything. It's a long, it's one of the longest and it's got everything. But at the same time, because of the conditions there, you got to be very careful by interpreting what you think you've just learned in Sepang. It's very easy to put in a new rear tire at nine o'clock in the morning and be the fastest guy of the, of the day. But you learn nothing because at nine o'clock is the best time to do the track, the time attack over there. So with the heat, the humidity there, um, in Sepang, the quality of the track, as we call it, changes over the hour. So you need a lot of experience and stay very calm because everything you measure is related to that hour of the day and these circumstances. So it's, 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 for example, a rookie mistake. A rookie mistake you can make is, um, going to the basic setting in the morning, be reasonably fast. And the rest of the day, you're struggling to find the best, le- this, uh, a better lap time even than you did in the morning. That's just because of the circumstances. So, Sepang as a track, it's got uh, stop and go. It's got fast flowing corners. It's got quick change of direction. It's got everything. So, that's the good thing. But like I said, conditions are very important. And secondly, because it's got everything, if you find something in your bike that helps it in one area, but does not help it in the other area, you 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 could think you found something, but because your overall lap time is okay, the only way you did it is to be faster in one area and slower in another area. Data, guys, data analysis is very, very important during the Sepang test in order not to draw a wrong conclusion. Where you really found that speed is not always where the riders at that moment, who are also a little bit rusty, think they found it. So it's very important before you draw any conclusions to really... Um, double check and maybe triple check where you found this lap time and where not. 
uh, obviously, the unique thing about Sepang is the heat and the, tr- and the humidity and all the rest of it. But that makes, I mean, from what I understand, that makes it actually quite difficult to figure out whether your engine is actually more powerful because, you know, it's overheating. Um, you, you've got problems with heat and you've got thinner air because, the because you know, the temperature and volume it's and all the rest of it. And it's a pang, yeah. Um, that also affects the uh, the aerodynamics, of course, as well, because that the, the air pressure change, the, the, the downforce changes as well, uh, changes as well as little, a, a little bit. Not quite as much, but still. Um how how can that can that have knock on effects for the rest of the year? Yes, especially in the first thing you notice the engine. You might think your engine is not running that well, or your throttle pickup is not as smooth as you want it to, and then everybody could say, "Well, it's just a pun, you know, it's odd." Once we go to Jerez, it will be all fine. And then when you arrive in Jerez, it's probably not. And then it's really late to find the solution. So your engines are running different in Japan, and as a manufacturer, you need the know-how and probably combined with experience to understand this is something we need to start working on immediately or say, no, this is this is just because it's it's a punk. You know, think of Ducati last year. They were riding around, riding around, not doing quite the lap times with the factory bikes, the Primark bikes and the factory bikes, not doing the lap times all the time, just not making the real lap times and all the time not realizing how bad the engine actually really was. They were thinking, no, nah, it's not that bad. It was quite new and it was really bad. So even Ducati, with all that experience and all these bikes, made that mistake one year ago. So they don't want to make the same mistake again. So if you ask me what's one of the problems could be in Sepang, that. Um, aerodynamics is really important as well. And obviously we've seen that during the year. Um, you were saying to me earlier that you thought that what we're going to see is teams not wanting to allow other teams to follow. Yeah, that's yeah, arrow. Arrow is way too too important anyway, but that's another subject. So now everybody will have new arrow because in arrow is where a lot of development is going on and big steps are made every month, every year. So teams will for example, one of the things that teams will look for in arrow is being having a more stable motor uh, motorbike when you are following or almost following another one because now you can see bikes getting completely out of shape and not being able to stop in time once you are behind another rider um, that's bad because that means you can't fight with your motorbike so they all want to prove that they found something in that area and everybody else don't want them to test that with you so there will be a lot of looking behind you and and mechanics pointing at somebody's coming a spang is an extra challenge because you can decide to do only half a lap yes so <laughs> if you're really looking for somebody you can find it. you you can put a lot of effort in there i think that's going to be also one of the things that not many people will speak about but they will look for it how the bike feels in the so-called dirty air right well let's quickly go through um the five remaining manufacturers in MotoGP. What is the main thing they're going to be looking for? What's the main improvement they're going to be looking for specifically at Sepang? Uh, start with Ducati. I mean, to me, it just seems like they want to be like last year, but more so. Well, you know, it's Ducati. They can't help themselves. They have to invent the motorbike all over again, and especially make more horsepower and more sophisticated high-end stuff on it. Last year, that went out really badly with them, you know? The bike, the engine that they that they developed last year, that they started to test in Sepang with the factory teams, was basically wrong because the whole throttle pickup didn't work very very well. So 
they made a big mistake last year that and they paid highly for it because they didn't understand this punk that was the problem so it was really late i think it was qatar yeah. between the testing qatar and the race they still started to swap engine cases and cylinders and stuff to make the, an hybrid engine so the good thing for ducati is they will not make the same mistake within a year there's probably another mistake to make so ducati is on top of the game so they want to try some advancements, some things they, 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 they think they need to test. But knowing Ducati or knowing Gigi a little bit, he also wants to keep a couple of cards in his sleeve. Because if you go out the first day and you smash the lap time, lap by lap by lap, way too good, everybody, all the lights will go red everywhere and they will work even harder to be ready in Portimao. So he will stay calm and test his stuff without showing that he's testing quite important stuff. That's what I think from Ducati. Um, the, well, the next bit, Yamaha. I mean, obviously, Yamaha need more horsepower. There was the weird test. We still don't know what happened at, uh, uh, at oh, Valencia. Yeah, yeah that, that they turned up and they, with the new engine, didn't have the horsepower. Uh, it, are they just going to be chasing horsepower? And how difficult is it to tell how much horsepower you have um, at Sepang? Well, that's another good thing from Sepang. You know when you don't have them. There's two really long straights where horsepower counts for everything. And they have so much data from these same two straights over all the years. They will know. Um, what happened in Valencia, nobody will ever really know, I think, or not tell us. But something really odd happened there. So the good thing from Yamaha is they have a brilliant motorbike which just needs horsepower. The challenge for Yamaha is... Finding extra horsepower in engine, but don't destroy the whole package is quite hard. And it's going to be a real challenge. And I'm very interested to see if they find it. Suzuki did it. They did from two years ago to last year. They found a heap of, they found a good amount of horsepower combined with the right aerodynamics that not too, dr too, uh, too extreme. So they found a lot of speed without losing, without sacrificing anything. But their engine, it's a foreign line as well. But the whole engine was quite different in many other ways from Suzuki to Yamaha. I'm really curious to see if Yamaha can find enough horsepower, let's, because they need a lot. You know, they lack, if you lack seven, eight, nine kilometers per hour, that's going to be easily 25, 30 horsepower. That's a lot. And if you find that amount of horsepower still in the same engine, phew, I'm, I'm curious if they find it and don't spoil anything else from because in, other than that it's a brilliant motorbike is more horsepower just more revs or is it more complicated than that oh it's definitely not only more revs there is a limit on the revs but it's it's having a more efficient engine at the same rev and preferably also have another couple of revs yeah. <laughs> that's the best thing and if they have some more revs then they need to do their homework very well be before they come to Sepang to to decide on new gearbox ratios, final ratios, you know, all the ratios. If you have 500 RPM more, the whole game changes completely. So day one is establish, yes, it feels more powerful, but does the gearing also feels correct? Is the fueling correct? And the next, next, maybe the biggest thing, if you find more horsepower, keep that sweet, sweet throttle pickup, that initial pickup when you have this 60 degree lean, lean angle and you just open the throttle, you want to have enough power to break traction a little bit but still feel, feel like you're very much in control with it, with the right-hand throttle. If that's not super sweet and predictable, you lose everything. Um, next to Aprilia, are Aprilia more like Ducati or are they more like Yuma uh, Yamaha? I mean, do they have a lot of work or do they have not very much work? Obviously, Alessio Spargo was not very happy after the Valencia test. He said, you know, they didn't bring anything new. Um, but do they have to... 
what do they need to do to the bike? In a way, like Ducati, but in an, in another way, completely new. They have their own problem. Uh, obviously, that bike, basically, as it is, as it comes, has some very, very good things in it. Um, the reason that the last couple of races from last year, they failed to live up to the to the expectations, is for me, could can only be more down to the team, to decisions, to the way the mechanics work, to mistakes made on the bike because you cannot have a bike that is so good in the first half year and then missing so much in the second half year that's almost not possible without making some mistakes and that mistakes sounds i don't want to be harsh on aprilia but probably they the 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 bike they had in the beginning of the year is so much better than they ever had before that that they don't even realize themselves some areas how good the bike is and then you make Sometimes two millimeter right height can make all the difference and sometimes nothing at all. Sometimes two millimeter is nothing, but half a degree head angle is everything. So what I'm trying to say is the bike was so new and so good, they didn't know it well enough. They lost completely the way how to set it up completely the second half of the season. So for me, it's interesting to see if they are at least starting on the on the level from last year and have something more after that. Their first job for Aprilia is to get back to standard. So the, the, what Aprilia will be testing is uh, the team rather than the bikes. Probably, yes. The way of working in the team. I think they have a lot of good people, but maybe the whole information flow or whatever, you know, it's still a young team. Maybe the way the team works is something that needs to, to, to be readdressed. Uh, KTM, um, they seem to take a step backwards in 2022 after some really good results in 2021 but we saw we did see some good uh, you know one or two good performances oh, like always with KTM eh? they're very promising but don't deliver completely they must be pissed off about last year because they we all expected a lot more from them still having said that the way the quality of the bike usually in races especially races where tire wear is an issue is unbelievable so they just miss the qualifying performance. Yeah. As easy as it sounds, that's very, very hard. That makes it even more special what Ducati did all the year. They had a bike that could qualify and that could finish races on the podium where you needed to really uh, pace your, your your speed over the race for tire wear. So Ducati is the most complete bike. Um, and yeah, speaking about the KTM, they are almost there. And that's why they love to speak with Jack Miller. Yeah. Because... <laughs> Obviously, Ducati don't tell the riders everything, but after being so many years at Ducati, he knows how they how they work, how they function, how the bike worked. He doesn't probably know the details, cause, so he can't tell the details to KTM. But actually, they bought more people from Ducati. So Yeah, they've got people from Ducati, yeah. and they've also got some people in from Red Bull to help with the, with the aerodynamics, so it's going to be interesting to yeah. see what they do there, whether they can make a step there. Um, uh, finally... Honda. I mean, it's make or break for 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 Honda because they, you know, they they tried to connect correct the weakness with the old bike, and what they ended up was just ruining uh, ruining the yeah. um, uh, ruining the strong points without gaining anything uh, at the rear. So it's a, it's a full disaster what happened at Honda. Um, but one of the problems from Honda probably. One of the things that this problem got bigger instead of smaller is Mark Marquez, mm. because he's too good. Yeah. 
you, you, you almost have to make two motorbikes. Yeah. You have to do one development, one group of people working on a bike with Mark, giving everything Mark wants because Mark asks for the good stuff that helps Mark, yeah. but it only helps Mark. Mm-hmm. Because as long as Mark is Mark and has his reflexes, he can work with, he wants a special motorbike and use it to the full extent. That special motorbike, that's motorbike for, not for any other normal human beings and for nobody except for Mark. So you have to almost develop two motorbikes. One is a normal V4, like KTM, and then a little bit better for the other guys, and one for Mark. They never do that. They listen a little bit to him, and then they have Stephen Brattle, is apparently a really good test rider, far off the pace compared to Mark. And the, the bike that they started with 2022 was not so bad. Eh? No, it exactly. performed well in the rain. It performed okay in Qatar, which is a very weird track, but still, points are the same, and you have to have a reasonable good motorbike. It performed really, really well in Qatar, and after that... They lost the plot completely. Yeah, that was basically just a, a, a an in season development mistake rather than anything I else. Think but, so. I think but so. They, but they're going to want to get more front grip back and keep some rear grip on them. Yeah, if if it's a, if it's a Mark Marquez bike, everything is on the front yeah. and the rear is there because otherwise the swing arm touches the ground. But you don't need a rear, yeah. no Mark. You know he needs a front. But nobody else can ride a motorbike with it. So people like Paul Espargo are really good MotoGP riders, but normal MotoGP riders, they want a more balanced motorbike, more neutral motorbike, where they can use the rear brake in a way they use it, not Mark. Mark is also hard on the rear brake, but in other moments. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that makes quite a difference. It's really very difficult to to for Honda to decide what to do. But they are Honda. They can do everything, so they should develop two motorbikes. Yeah. It's probably, um, probably almost the only way. Well, they've got two uh, They've got two Suzuki riders on the bike now, so that should uh, that should help as well. Well, how big a step is that, David? Coming yeah. from a Suzuki, yeah, to, exactly. a, to, Suzuki <laughs> to a Honda. Speaking of a cold shower. Hi, Yes, exactly. That that is proper culture shock. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Peter. And uh, we hope to hear from you more on the podcast later in the year. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Oh, yeah. I was looking at the laptop... Mm-hmm. And I was looking at um, the other one as well, and uh, we were perfectly in sync with the phones, or like my phone and your laptop. And then on the the host, it was it was out. So I think we've got we've got that dialed in now. We're uh, just about getting there, Stevie. Yeah, it's only taking. Yeah, we're getting there. It's eight, only taking five years. Yeah, eight eight years, seven eight years. Yeah, we're going to go with five. Five <laughs> years of property damage, you know. <laughs>